Hello, and welcome to JK It's Magic, a bi-weekly podcast in which two bookish besties read YA fantasy through a critical lens. Why? Because critique is our fangirl love language, and because talking about books is pretty magical. I'm Jesse, And I'm Kelly. And today, we're going to talk about Dread Nation by Justina Ireland. Um, in this book, Jane is a biracial teen who has been forced into a school where she learns to fight zombies, called Shamblers in this story. Through a series of events, she ends up in a walled-in town that is meant to be a city on a hill. Um, but due to Jane's race, class, and gender, she is separated from the good people and asked to fight shamblers. Her and her friend Catherine are looking for a way out of town, and a few people may have to die in order to make that happen. Initial reactions. I loved how Justina Ireland doesn't pull any punches in this novel. It's a direct takedown of white supremacy and disgusting MAGA bullshit. The characters are flawed and deep and well-written. I love how Jane embraces rage, really identify with that and think that's wonderful. And also there's a long legacy, an important legacy of that in Black feminist thought. Um, And who doesn't like a zombie story now and again? I like the book. Me. I don't normally like a zombie (laughs) story. (laughs) It took me a few chapters to get into this book because I'm not really a big zombie fan. But once I formed a connection with the characters and Jane in particular, um, I absolutely loved it. The fighting was amazing. The topics Ireland was talking about were on point. And I thought this was a great depiction of how race, class, and gender are intersectional. I absolutely loved it. This is such an important book. I think people should be more people should be reading it. Yes. Yes, speaks to so many current day issues. Time to talk about world building in Through the Wardrobe. So this novel, Dread Nation, is an example of the alternate history genre, and which which is sometimes in like depending on how, what literary historians, how they want to categorize it, can sometimes go with utopia or dystopia. It can sometimes be science fiction, sometimes fantasy, or like a combination slash all or none of the above. Um, and I think that the alternate history is a really effective way to conduct a socio-historical thought experiment through narrative. And I think Dread Nation is an example of that. Yeah, I really liked how um, the story didn't, I know there was talk in the past of um, the creators of Game of Thrones making a world, like if the Civil War, if the South had won the Civil War Mm-mm. kind of story. Mm-mm. Not here for it. Nope. I think it might still be happening. I'm not happy about it. But I do think this is a good example of how you can do a story similar to that without, you know, making white people the focus of the story. <laughs> that's a great. Ex- yeah, that's a great idea. That's a really good point. But like, who who are you? Who's the protagonist of the story? Right. Who are you doing this for? Who are you giving greater visibility to? I don't think giving greater visibility to the antebellum no. white slave like slave ownership class is the way to go. And based on how white Game of Thrones is, I can't imagine them doing anything else. <laughs> so I really appreciate that this story was more focused on um, the people of color in the world. Um, both the indigenous people and the mixed race black people. So this novel is set in what would what we would consider the reconstruction era. That would be our equivalent, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And it's like obviously a zombie filled reconstruction. <laughs> <laughs> but so what happens is the the civil war gets paused because 
all of the dead from the battlefield start become shamblers and zombies and then come and so then the north and the south decide that in order to for not everyone to die and then become alive-ish again undead (laughs) for people not for all of the living humans to avoid becoming undead they needed to stop fighting one another and start fighting this like band together for this common enemy right and i what I think the novel does really effectively is shows that unless you do a lot of that unlearning, unlearning racism, unlearning, like uprooting white supremacy, unless you do a lot of that within the coalition, then it's those divides are just going to they're going to resurface. Right. And we see that in the story that like slavery is no longer legal. Right. But similar to like our modern day prison system the 13th amendment doesn't fix those problems if you don't put something else in place to help bridge the gap um between what was and what you want things to be so i really appreciated the way they showed that throughout the story Mm -hmm. there's also a lot of politics from this era area as well like so from the south so on page 17 jane says the federal government is the law of the land but it doesn't have much say in how things are truly run within these walls most cities are small nations unto themselves with mayors and their councils in control Um, i think this was a great example of the southern emphasis on states rights during the civil war um, which is often something that people from the South will say was the real reason for the Civil War as opposed to slavery. <laughs> Bullshit. Yeah. They conveniently forget that the states wanted the right to have slaves and that they thought that was their states' rights. It's all real shitty. I'm from the South. It can be kind of terrible, even if the food is real delicious. Um, and it's a very diverse place. But this novel was like a great reminder for me of why I don't want to go back. <laughs> it very much unveils how that this rhetoric of local control right. and self-determination on a local level or a regional level in certain cases can just be, you know, hiding right. racial under like racist undertones. Which is kind of difficult because in some ways, like I'm glad to live in a state that is very liberal given the current government you know, like in the president right now, it's really great to live somewhere so liberal, but that in the reverse, it, it just, I don't know. It sucks. <laughs> it's one of those where local autonomy can be used for better or for worse, essentially yeah. for liberation or right. for oppression. And it's yeah. like, who are you liberating? Who yeah. are you oppressing? Exactly. Mm-hmm. And it can be difficult to get out of a place like that as well. So it's not like people can always just move somewhere else. They don't always have that option. Mm-hmm. Another part of the world building is taking elements from the Reconstruction era and making them very visible throughout the novel. And so for the readers, then it feels very vivid and very real. So there's the clothing is a a big deal. Same with the language. So from the dialect people use in dialogue or in Jane's exposition to like racial slurs, for example, although no N-word, which I thought was a deliberate choice. I think it was. And I appreciated it. Yes. But there were lots of other racial slurs that we don't hear as often today. And I think sometimes people forget that they are racial slurs. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I appreciated having something else in the place of the N-word. One thing that another thing that the novel does or that Ireland does to facilitate this world building is uses flashbacks. So Jane, from one chapter to another, I think there are only two or three 
entire chapters of flashbacks, but Jane will go back and talk about her life growing up at Rose Hill, which is a plantation right. in Kentucky. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and I thought that that was a really effective way to to build in some more of that exposition without it feeling like just a lot of telling what was going on, which I know is one of your beefs. Yeah, this was a good example of show don't tell. <laughs> um, so in this story, we have zombies and science and magic and religion. The scientists slash doctors are looking for a scientific reason as to why a person would become a shambler. And the survivalists, who are predominantly Christians, are using the shamblers to say God is punishing them for their sins. Um, And they are using that as propaganda to say race and gender. um, Each race and gender ought to know their place in society. But we, the reader, um, as well as Jane, know there's also magic in this world. So all these different beliefs coexist in the story. And I'm interested to see if we'll get a reason as to why the Shamblers came about later in the story um, and future books. I did like how that wasn't resolved. Yeah. There weren't any, there wasn't any like tidy conclusions right. or tying a bow mm-hmm. and figuring it all out for the reader. Right. But I like a story where all these things coexist in one place uh, throughout the, like the science and the magic and religion. It's just interesting to see them all interconnected and how they work together and against each other throughout the novel i really i really like that absolutely and i think not that realism has to be aspirational necessarily but that is i think a hallmark of how the world actually does work empirically yes definitely wands out let's discuss all things magic the main magical element that I saw in the novel was actually an item, the penny, which is Jane's protective amulet. And I think Jane says that her mother dismisses it as quote unquote hoodoo, mm-hmm. aka non-Western and non-Judeo-Christian spirituality, um, which I thought was um, telling, I guess, of the way that those sorts of that sort of spiritual way of relating to the world that's that's more decolonial right is seen as illegitimate even by the people who come from that ancestry right right yeah it was um interesting because we learn much later in the novel that jane's mother is actually white passing which i did not see that coming i didn't either i was shocked i was like wait what i was so like oh it was a good like twist that i didn't see and that you know it just doesn't happen that often that something happens and i'm like wait what (laughs) yeah i was shocked i at first thought that the novel was trying to like position jane's mother as like a gwp like a good white person like she had and she owned enslaved people but she was one of the good ones yeah yeah that's what i thought was happening as well but it was interesting to see this, like the the penny is her protective amulet, and it's the one piece of like solid magic we get in the book. Um, and I'm really hoping for more in following books. I really enjoyed learning about hoodoo and voodoo after I went to New Orleans a few years ago. Um, if you don't know much about it, I would suggest learning more about it and Madame Louveau in particular, who is one of the um, voodoo high priestesses. Because it has deep ties to the magic of former slaves in the South. 
But I enjoyed that this was introduced early on. And I'm wondering if we're going to see... Because I guess the zombies, we don't know how they came about. So I don't know if they're magic or not. I don't know what will happen with them. I don't know. And I think that we, if we see... Are there going to be future books? Yes. Okay. So if we see Jane in relationship with more indigenous people, for example, we might see another side of this non-Western, non-European spirituality that is inherently connected to magic. Right. That's so true. Maybe the zombies will be magic. I don't know where to place the zombies within like this world, like world building or within magic, because I don't know how they got there. There's also mention of magical abortions within this story. Which I'm like, yeah, safe access to abortions, very important, even if by way of magic. (laughs) Absolutely. And I think there's a long history of healers in a lot of different traditions, irrespective of race or geography, Right. where women would go to healer, witchy types Mm -hmm. and get remedies for unwanted pregnancies. Yeah. And I was just like, great. Thanks, Justina Ireland. Much appreciated. Wands away. Now we're going to talk about conflict, villains, and good versus evil in our segment, Get Me Kylo Ren. What I think Ireland really succeeds at in this book is showing that villainy or evil isn't confined to people, but to tactics or strategies that people use to gain and maintain power over others and one example of this is fear-mongering as a political strategy and this is what makes the survivalists in the novel the the real villains of the book I would say and one thing that Gideon says when he's talking about his father also didn't see that coming no not at all (laughs) another twist (laughs) he says if you can sell people on a dream of security and prosperity the facts are irrelevant on page 404 and to me this just struck me as a really prescient diagnosis of the 45th his hateful rhetoric and also why it's so incredibly effective and why it's symptomatic of the moment of what's been going on for a long time and it also shows how this sort of rhetoric appeals to nostalgia, which is like hence the MAGA slogan. And But Ireland's novel, what I loved about it is it shows this message for what it really is. White supremacist, illogical, hateful, selfish, and also doomed to die. Hopefully. We can only hope that that is what happens. Agreed. I had to go back and look and because there is this the motto of the survivalists is make America safe again, which I was like, wait, when was this book written? And I like turned to the copyright page and it's from 2018. So it's pretty new. So it's Um, probably being written in the several years before. But yeah, the election cycle starts, you know, in 2015. Right. So I was like, this is a direct uh, like takedown of that message that we get from, you know certain kinds of people terrible terrible people that's why we can't wear red hats anymore i know red's one of my favorite colors and i'm real pissed that they were like let me co-opt this color no baseball caps anymore no No red baseball caps no and another they also want to quote restore america to its former glory yeah which is just euphemistic for maga essentially yeah and it's and it's one of those things where it's like restoring america to a different time and place is really just 
a way of saying like I want white people to be in power again and people of color to be considered beneath them and you know I don't know it's frustrating yeah it's essentially wanting to go back to a system that justifies right that racial hierarchy yeah and it's not justifiable which is what happens in summerland yes also a weird name for the place never moved to the middle of nowhere apparently the zombies will get you real fast Mm -hmm. (laughs) so if we can understand get out as quote a clever tale of benevolent liberal middle class racism that's from a cinema thread article that we'll link to in the show notes um, then Dread Nation strikes me as a tale of MAGA racism. Yes, definitely. Also, if you haven't seen Get Out, please watch it. I heard some white ladies talking about it the other day. And one of the people was like, this movie wasn't really that scary. And it's like, if you can just imagine yourself as a black man in America, this movie is terrifying. It's not really for you. I don't like the bullshit that it was listed as a comedy. Can yeah. you remember? Was it at the Golden Globes? It was one of those places. Now, the director might have some choice over where that goes. I'm not sure. I don't think in this case it did. Okay. I can't remember where it was, which which award show, but that was clearly like the white people on the committee did not get it. Yeah. It's a horror movie when you think about how horrifying it is. We interrupt these deep cuts to bring you Show Us Your Fix. Which character do you think deserves their own storyline? Let us know by finding us on Twitter or Instagram at JKMagicPod. I want fix about Jackson. He's like a such a roguish figure. I'm a sucker for those. Yes. And I am really interested in Gideon as a character. <laughs> <laughs> Shocker. The I know. nerdy, thin I know. type. I know. But... I also want to say that I have some very complicated feelings about this love triangle that's being set up here. Yes, that is their... Ireland is definitely laying the groundwork for the love triangle. Yes. Okay, so here are my feelings about Jackson and Gideon. Jackson is the only biracial um, male that we encounter in the story. Correct? Yes. Yes. As far as I know. Yeah. And initially, it felt like Jane and Jackson were being set up to be OTP. Cool. But then Jane also has feelings for Gideon, a white dude. Choosing Jackson felt like putting the two biracial people together because they're the same. And I really hate when movies, TV shows, books, whatever, do that. Like, they're the only two. And in real life, when people try and do that, it's annoying. Um, But shipping Jane and Gideon almost feels like a betrayal because so much of the violence Jane has encountered is at the hands of white people and white men. And especially given that Gideon's father is the mouthpiece of this awful, hateful survivalist group. Yeah, exactly. So now I realize that uh, as a biracial person with a white partner, I'm probably picking up on some of this because of who I am and my experiences and my own feelings surrounding imposter syndrome but still like this is just like a really complicated love triangle to me and i'm like can they just like be with no one at this point i just don't want her to be with anyone all or nothing yeah it could be a thruple all it takes is open communication yeah why don't they do that if an author was going to do that at this point i feel like it would be justina ireland because she's like let me give you a little bit of everyone Mm -hmm. and i'm like okay i'll take it i'll take it yeah yeah those are my feelings. 
Okay, back to the deep cuts. Because just as one does not simply walk into Mordor, one does not simply read fantasy without talking about representations of race, class, and gender. This is our segment about powers and bodies and how they relate. I want to offer a disclaimer before we get into One Does Not Simply Too Far. So for me, when I was writing these episode notes, what really struck me is that for this book, all of these different identity aspects seem to be inextricably connected, more so than in other novels we've read for the podcast. Would you say that? I would agree. Reading it, all I could think was like, man, this is a perfect example of how race, class, gender colonialism like it's intersectional and if you don't think so like read this book (laughs) it it really is so and I think that that's really I just wanted to like highlight that and put that out there before we get into talking about this so when we talk about specific segments like mini segments within this larger segment one does not simply I just really want to emphasize that this is all connected and that'll become apparent obviously in our conversation And another thing, before we start talking about specific identity categories like race, class, gender, etc., one thing that I think supersedes all of this and permeates all of these different identities is the the role that stereotypes play in the performance of identity, but also in how other people perceive that. And so, like, in relationship to one's own identity and also how others perceive your identity. And... What I really like, I really liked how this novel explored how stereotypes are both incredibly oppressive and they can be a tactic for marginalized people to fight their oppressors. So Jane in particular talks about living down to people's expectations and that lets her essentially like, I mean, trick people. Yeah. Yeah. She is using the oppressor's ignorance against them and showing how their short-sightedness is very easily exploited and it's one of their weaknesses. Yeah, and we see that with Daniel Redfern as well, um, who's an indigenous person, um, whose actual name I hope we learn later. That's the only name we have for him at this point. Because he went to a residential school. Right, yeah. And I'm sure his name, like his indigenous name is different. Well, he said that was a name given to him, so hopefully we'll learn what his actual name is later. Let's start with colonialism. Let's. So this idea of quote unquote residential schools was something used in Canada and also what is now what is now Canada and what is now the United States stolen land. Um, So these residential schools, quote unquote, for indigenous people were the inspiration for the combat schools like Miss Preston's that we see in the novel. And the reason we learn this is because of the author's note at the end of the book. And I just loved how Ireland gives suggestions for further reading about this dark and important part of our history. And it shows how the project of settler colonialism is different from colonialism. And maybe I should unpack that a little bit more. I guess settler colonialism, we can see that as um, when another group comes and takes people's land from them. But, and and it's like, it's based on replacing, essentially. Erasing, making invisible, containing the indigenous people or and or just like genocide, straight up extermination of them. Versus, so the U.S. and Canada, what's now the U.S. and Canada would be examples of that. Versus colonialism, more straight up, would be, for example, what 
um, the Spanish Empire did to what we now know as Latin, as like Mezzo and like Central and Latin America, um, which is take over the social order, make everyone subservient to you. And there was a lot of obviously death and awful killing, but it's a different project because it, it's wanting to redo the social hierarchy um, rather than replace, eliminate the indigenous people. So I guess that's a primer. Check out white Sa- No White Saviors for more on Instagram for more about that. I also appreciated that Justina Ireland in her um, notes at the end and her author's note included works. I think all of her works were by indigenous people. Yes. So you get the account of the people who are affected by what has happened in the past instead of, you know, white people doing research with no no real connection to the issue or no real idea of how those things really affect people in the modern day and throughout time. So I really appreciated that she was that when she gave her resources, she used the resources of people who are actually affected and who are actually living those experiences. And one thing I love and want to give props to Justina Ireland about is grappling head on with the really unique um, configuration, I guess, that is the basis of oppression in what we now call the United States, which is this trifecta of settler colonialism. So like the, so white Europeans coming over indigenous people, genocide, taking their land, settler colonialism, and also enslavement of African people. That's a really, I mean, that's a super complicated dynamic. And I think that Justina Ireland tackles that really well in this novel. Yeah, I really appreciated that. Jane makes a passing, uh, along those same lines, Jane makes a passing comment comparing indigenous people to enslaved people. And in, in the vein of who has it worse And, I mean, it goes without saying that both are fucking terrible and traumatic and that we have barely begun the work to remedy them. Yeah. um, But I thought that this was an important thing to think about. On page 88, Jane says, Mama used to say the Indian was even worse off than the Negro because instead of being taken from his land, he'd been had his land taken from him, which I think is a difficult thing that sometimes different minority groups will do where they will say, well, my group had it worse. And I don't mm-hmm. think that's really the best way to try and like figure everything out, like to make it better for all of us. But at the same time, if we're committed to decoloniality as like a possibility, right. then grappling with how descendants of formerly enslaved people and are also contributing to the settler colonialist project right. along with white people. Right is I I think important to recognize not easy but important right um this might be a good time to talk about reparations so which has been in the news a lot lately especially with the elections coming up I'm saying soon but we're like still a year and a half away which seems like forever right now um if you haven't already read the case for reparations by Ta-Nehisi Coates he's been talking about reparations long before this presidential cycle this um piece that he wrote for the Atlantic is actually from 2014 
Um, but I think someone who often gets left out of this conversation for reparations is indigenous people. Um, I think it would be wise to include them in this conversation because obviously slavery was terrible. There's no way around that. But so was what the colonizers did to the people who were already here. Um, This country has done many, many terrible things, slavery and colonization included. And to me, there are definitely reparations that need to be made to both black and indigenous people. So I'm not really sure why they're excluded from the conversation so often, not only when we're talking about reparations, but also when we talk about, um, racism and systemic racism and the things that are going on in this country to black people sometimes they're happening to a a higher extent to indigenous people absolutely and i think one of the reasons why it doesn't get talked about that much is because settler colonialism thrives on making indigenous communities seem like they're invisible and or part of the past as in like oh that happened back in the day right um but no they're very much here they're very much like those communities have a lot of issues but there's also a lot of resiliency and incredible power and beauty and um but that doesn't get a lot of visibility in the media yeah i agree another um resource i would recommend is the article decolonization is not a metaphor Decolonization is not a metaphor is an article by Eve Tuck and K. Wang, Wayne Yang. And what essentially it, it's talking about how when you take decolonization and make it like decolonize your mind, decolonize your syllabus, it is obscuring the fact that decolonization is the, quote, repatriation of indigenous land and life. It's not a metaphor for other things that we want to do to improve our societies and schools. So that's from the abstract of this article. We'll link to it in the show notes. Important conversations to have. Yeah. More reparations for all kinds of people. Which is a good segue to talking more explicitly about race. Let's talk about it. This, um, the title of the novel, Dread Nation, made me think that maybe this is a reference to Dred Scott, who was an enslaved man a formerly enslaved man who in 1857 tried unsuccessfully to sue for his freedom and his family's freedom. And Dred Scott v. Sanford determined that no person of African ancestry could claim citizenship in the United States. So, possible reference? I think so. Also, fucking terrible. (laughs) The Supreme Court voted 7-2 in favor of Sanford, not Dred Scott. And said that he couldn't sue for his slavery because he had lived in free territories or whatever. Or for, sue for his freedom because he had lived in free territories or whatever. Yeah. Garbage. Total garbage. Legality does not equal morality. Say it again for like the people who can't hear you. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Legality is not the same thing as morality. How many times have we talked about this? So the ma- law does not make something morally correct. <laughs> nope. I think we need to talk about passing. Yes. And I'm going to just start us off and then <laughs> metaphorically hand the mic to you. Okay. Since you have your own mic, I Thank don't need you. to hand anything to you. <laughs> I have my own things. Thank you. So this, the question of um, being white passing for black people comes up with Catherine. So Jane's frenemy turned friend. And also Jane's mother, which we've already said was a huge surprise. There are both difficulties that come with passing, imposter syndrome, difficulties within the community, right? You're too light-skinned for the community, but also that gives you certain privileges, but also excludes you from the from Black community in certain ways. Um, so 
I think it's a subject position with really unique tensions. And that might be the understatement of the century. Yes, maybe. (laughs) I'm not white passing, so I can't explicitly speak to how that feels. But I can talk a little about a bit about imposter syndrome. And we see that with both Jane and Catherine. Jane is too dark to be passing, so she doesn't fit in with white people, but she's also ostracized by black people because she isn't black enough. Um, I really appreciated that depiction in the novel because I think even now that is a feeling that many biracial people feel, myself included. Um, It can be a difficult thing to not fit in with either group. And at the same time, you can't really force your way into either group. No one... It's, it's hard to feel not accepted with both halves of yourself. Um, the book puts many of the biracial people together, like Jane and Catherine. And in some ways, that might be true to the way that we form our own groups. Um, and it's like, by, because it's nice to have other people to relate to. So when I was in like middle and high school, and even elementary school, because I grew up in a more diverse place than Colorado, <laughs> um, there were a lot of biracial people. And we would inevitably gravitate towards each other, probably due to those shared experiences. Um, But at the same time, it also kind of sucks that you can't be part of the white group because you're too black and part of the black group because you're too white. Or if you want to be part of one of the groups, you have to push away that other quote unquote side of yourself and the traits that come with that. As if they were easily delineated (laughs) sides. Yeah, as if I can just choose that I'm either black or white when people see me as one or the other or somewhere in the middle. But we also benefit from privilege because colorism, it's so complicated and imposter syndrome totally sucks. And I don't think there's, I I mean, I don't know. I don't know what can be done about it. (laughs) Did you uh, like this novel's treatment of those of those themes? I thought it did a really good job with it. Um, and I think we see it from different vantage points where Catherine is forced to to choose her quote unquote white side. Which so, she talks about being really traumatic and awful for her. Exactly. And then Jane is forced to choose her quote unquote black side, even though when she was living at the plantation, the black people like were like, No, we don't you're not part of our group. But then when she's in summer land, she's forced to be part of the black group without her own decision I don't know it's just it's real difficult and I think Justina Ireland did a good job of showing how it's difficult to like straddle that line between who you want to be and who you have to be outwardly to fit into a group Mm -hmm. and I really appreciated that and we see this a lot with Jane she's code switching a lot yes um absolutely that people will think different things of her the way she talks around some people is different than the way she talks around other people she specifically you know does performs this caricature of blackness you know formerly enslaved person right like no education she performs that with her like language and accent and the content of what she says to specific to certain white people. Right. And that goes back to my point that I made earlier, right? The living down to people's expectations. Yeah. 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 I think Justina Ireland did a fantastic job showing how how difficult it is to like navigate the waters of being a biracial person a lot of the times. And I mean, I don't know what you're supposed to do. I don't know. I just try and live my life as genuinely as possible, but it's it's super difficult because you just find yourself like without even thinking about it, you like 
turn that knob in your head and you're code switching without even realizing it based on the person you're talking to. Like when I walked up to the desk (laughs) when you were working and you were talking on the phone to a white person and your voice sounded completely different. Yeah, that I used my white customer service voice. (laughs) It sounds real nice and pleasant, I guess. People don't, they don't, they come in threatening quote yeah, unquote. exactly and when they come into the library they're like i was speaking to jesse can you help me find her and i'm like that would be me i can tell you did not think that's what i oh. who i was based on what i sounded like wow interesting yeah but yeah it's a difficult thing but i think she did a great job of you know showing us what that looks like in a different time but i do think it it is very uh prescient to today Shall we talk about white supremacy? You can talk about white supremacy. Unfortunately, I feel like that's my uh, that's my duty. <laughs> you need to talk about that. Thank you. Because it thrives on remaining invisible, pretending like it's not a thing. One thing that Dread Nation does um, very effectively is shows how white supremacy is based on fear. And one way that it does this is the use of the zombie as a fixture as a figure. And zombies have been a way to represent racialized fears, or they've been read that way ever since um, Night of the Living Dead, which is a movie from 1968. And it, so starting there, and as horror as a genre evolves, the zombie stands in for an other, capital O, and oftentimes a racialized other. And um, there's some really good articles that we'll link to in the show notes about um analyses of night of the living dead and how that wasn't necessarily meant to tackle racism but it did the protagonist is black um not the first person to die shocker in a horror movie what i've never seen it i haven't either but i've i just remember reading about it more when i was reading about get out because jordan peele cites night of the living dead as a big um source of inspiration for him um so i just wanted to say that the zombies is one way that it shows that white supremacy is based on fear I think the obsession with safety and security just betrays an underlying fear. Fear of what? Otherness, difference. Black people. Black people. <laughs> it's like as manifested, made manifest in black people. Right. They won't give them guns. They're like afraid that they're going to kill them. Yeah. And, I mean, rightfully, they should probably. Uh-huh. Which is curious then. And I mean, makes total sense when gun control became a thing because the Black Panthers started arming themselves. Yeah, of course it did. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god yeah just fucking white people god damn it um i think white supremacy is also another way that the novel shows that it's based on fear is by um this nostalgia for how things were and a racial hierarchy that existed previously and is still you know still exists with what essentially are parallels to jim crow type policies um it's interpreting more um opportunities and liberation for everyone as taking something away from me as I was previously on top. And so it's that scarcity mindset, right? right? Where more rights, more opportunities for other people mean that I have fewer rights and fewer opportunities. And that's not what that means at all. That sort of scarcity mindset is very much underpins white supremacy and hence the nostalgia, right? And, And being scared of what happens in the future. Right. Another thing the novel shows is how white supremacy changes, like the manifestations of how white supremacy is affected on a social level. They just change form. So it doesn't go away or it hasn't yet. I mean, I hope that one day it doesn't exist, but um, it 
changes form. So the compounds in the lost states of the South are described as, quote, nothing more than the reinstitution of the plantation system, end quote, and, quote, a fresh coat of paint on the same old problems, end quote. It's from page 405. And it's just, that's absolutely what happens. That's what the Jim Crow South was. That's what the school to prison pipeline is now. The, you know, crisis of mass incarceration, specifically for communities of color, um, ICE and immigration policing, this sort of, uh, those policies are very much doing the work of white supremacy. So social hierarchy for the white people in this novel is seen as a divine mandate. And this goes back to thinking from medieval, from medieval Europe and justifying looking to religious texts, specifically Christianity, Christian texts, to justify the way things are currently, whether that's class system, whether that's a racial system. I mean, they're both intertwined, obviously. Um, and it's just a textbook move using religious doctrine to justify oppression. Which is also always so surprising to me. One, I would like to remind white people that Jesus was not white. <laughs> he was a person of color. <laughs> Let me just put that out there. Black Jesus is closer than like your white, blonde haired, blue eyed Jesus. I've seen a lot of like. pictures of Jesus that look like Nicolas Cage. Yeah. In white people's houses. Okay. Well, at my grandma's house, he's black. <laughs> <laughs> but also like they always take the story of like the Israelites getting freedom from Jesus. And I'm like, and then you were like, let me put other people into slavery, even though you're trying to like make this connection between yourselves and Jewish people who are enslaved in Egypt. It just doesn't make any logical sense. The white people in Summerland, especially the preacher, blame the current predicament of shambler zombiness on the abolition of slavery and the enfranchisement of formerly enslaved people. It's just like, what? I think it, Ireland masterfully crafts shows how shows all the fallacies, all the logical fallacies that underpin this white supremacist way of thinking. Another thing that I want to mention, but don't, it's not my wheelhouse. So I don't want to get too far into it or like, I want to stay in my lane a little bit as a white person. But one thing Jane brings up a lot and, not a lot. I guess she mentioned it maybe three or four times in the exposition throughout the novel is specifically black people who are complicit in their own impression. And Jane concludes that these people don't know what to do with freedom. Cora is an example of this in Summerland. So it's, she's specifically talking about the, the black people who are doing the work of white oppressors by policing the behavior of other black people Yeah, in specific ways. I think we do see this a lot even in modern times um especially from black conservatives talking about things like the way that black people dress or act or talk or wear their hair um just all those things i'm thinking specifically of um bill cosby who used to talk about the way that black men dressed and how they needed to wear belts because their pants shouldn't be hanging down like all those things turns out he's a terrible person who did some very terrible things and had no right to be policing any community at all um but yeah i don't think i think it happens really often when when black people try to entrench themselves in white society as a friend to white people 
in such a way as they're like, well, they're in charge, so let me get on their good side. And to do that means betraying your own people. It's very complicated. Yeah. One thing I, I think the novel is trying to make this point is that this is the extent of the trauma that slavery inflicts. Right. Yeah. It makes people are complicit in their own impression. It, it, it can go so far as to make people implicit complicit in their own oppression yeah and i think that doesn't just happen with enslavement i think that like trauma can like abuse right and that can be that way too right then holding who do we hold responsible for cycles of abuse right. responsibility and accountability is i mean distributed throughout that cycle um i think we yeah. also see this when one minority group tries to police another minority group right um i think that's probably where we see it not most often, but we, I think we do see that a lot where different minority groups try to police other minority groups. And it comes across as like, well, we did okay, so they should be able to do okay. And it's like, well, the oppression of different groups of people aren't always equitable. <laughs> and Black feminist thought for a long time has been talking about the importance, but also the difficulties of coalition building and about how it's uncomfortable and but but really important to be able to see across difference rather than just a lie right. difference. Um and I think that that connects to what you're saying, yeah. too. Yeah, like white feminism. Like, right. if you're not helping black people, black women who are probably, you know, have been treated worse than white women, then you're not. I mean, it's not feminism. It's not intersectional. It's not feminism. It's white supremacy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This novel shows that science is racist. So racist. Race science, quote unquote, uh, Phrenology, for example, like right. measuring people's skulls, skulls and business like that in order to determine how what like what race they were. Right. Is something that race science comes out of slavery and as an institution. It comes after that right. to justify slavery as an institution. Right. Um, and for further learning, I recommend the Secret Feminist Agenda episode. Um, episode 13 of season three, which is understanding white supremacy. And um, Dr. Hannah McGregor gets into a little bit more what current, like people like, ugh, like gross Jordan Peterson, bleh, gross stuff. But also um, like um, an American version would be like the that guy who wrote the bell curve. That's basically justifying, I don't know, garbage, garbage. It's, it's like justifying it's trying to use science instead of religion to justify racial hierarchies right. that are white supremacist. And another thing to add is that modern medicine, especially gynecology, for example, owes its existence to the non-consensual experimentation on black bodies. There's a lot of scholarship about medicine and how fucked it is for differently racialized people who are non-white. And like Harriet Washington's book, Medical Apartheid, Apartheid, The Dark History of Medical Experimentation on Black Americans from Colonial Times to the Present. And we see this happening in the novel when the scientists are using, are experimenting on Black people for their vaccines against the shamblers and f using this like pseudoscience race science quote-unquote doctrine to justify their experiments right i took that as like a uh a, a callback to that or that was reminiscent of the tuskegee experiment so yeah. like they're in this case they're doing vaccines for shamblers instead of syphilis but still non-consenting people <laughs> you're just running your experiments that's not okay 
We also get the concept of good hair, um, which we encounter in many novels by and about black people. Um, But when Nessie, one of the women who works for Duchess, um, she's doing Jane's hair and she talks about how she has good hair because it's not as thick. Um, So we encounter this a lot. I would recommend reading the article from Wear Your Voice magazine about natural hair, which talks about the stigmas surrounding natural hair. And listen to the Code Switch episode on decolonizing your beauty routine. It can be difficult to walk through this world with natural hair as a black person. Um, and there's lots of stigmas about that and the things Every, we do to our hair. Everyone has opinions about it. And lots of people just need to shut up. And you cannot touch it. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> Let's talk about class. Let's. Clearly, slavery creates a another class of people even lower than the lower classes because they have you know they are seen as property rather than and have like no no buying power or anything like that right but in this like fake utopian slash dystopian society of summerland people make a guard like a terrible wage the the black people on the patrols make a terrible wage right um and then they go to stores that have inflated prices or the one store that has in town that has inflated prices and then spend all their money. And then they're caught in the system of poverty essentially. Right. And we don't know for sure, but I don't, to me, I thought the store was charging the black people more than other people. Wouldn't surprise me at all. No, no. But what we do see in dread nation is the visibility of tension between white people in the lower class and black and indigenous people. So whites of lower class of the lower class, They could act in solidarity with these other more marginalized people, but instead they blame black and indigenous people for their what they see as like their own oppression and unacceptable class status. Right. Of course, no one deserves to live in poverty. Absolutely not. Right. But instead of building solidarity on the basis of class consciousness, what happens is um, start to place blame on these other even more marginalized communities right to me is a direct parallel to the sort of reasoning that you see um coming out of a certain demographic of gop slash tea party slash um trump voters white christian rural lower slash working class less access to education and sometimes that can translate into buying into that hateful rhetoric that's pitting that's positioning white people in a lower class as the victims. It's essentially saying like embracing the scarcity mindset saying that if black and indigenous people or other people of color, immigrants, whatever, what have you um, have are to blame for the lower class status of white people. Right. Well, they're basically saying if these people weren't here to take our jobs or whatever other reasonings they have, then we would be better off. Which is not the case at all. Nope. I don't know. It's frustrating. Very. Yeah, class is a hard one because we even see uh, a difference in class in uh, the black people. And this, like, some of the black people are sent, or black women in this case, are sent to Miss Preston's and other ones are sent to, like, worse schools. And I don't actually know how they decide who gets sent to which school. That wasn't clear to me either. Yeah. Because there is mention of schools where they are there for a couple of weeks and then they're on patrols, but it wasn't really explained why some people went to better schools or worse schools. That I'm not sure about. I think that it was along class lines. 
Oh, okay. Or, or, but like, or behavior lines, right? So, because Jane was afraid if she got kicked out of Miss Preston, she would get shipped to oh, right. another school that essentially doesn't prepare you. You're there for two right. weeks and then they send you out to die. Right. So, I guess good behavior. I'm not sure how I feel about that either. Blech. Yeah. Gender. So, I went down a slight rabbit hole, not surprising at all, given that. Listeners of this podcast will know that that's what I tend to do <laughs> um, about clothing. So while clothing might seem frivolous, it's actually a really important societal marker, especially to emphasize class and gender differences and even racialized differences, I would say. Um, so social hierarchies have been and continue to be signaled and maintained through clothing. And there's actually a really long history of women's clothing in specifically, I'm talking about Western culture since that's right. like the American context and also the context with which I'm most familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, but women's clothing in Western culture has been consistently policed throughout history. And we'll link to some interesting articles about that. Um, so along the, so I have a few things to say about this and interject whenever you want. I'm with Jane. I, I, in the context of the world she's in, I don't understand the point of dresses. <laughs> they make it so you can't outrun shamblers and then die and become undead. Well, I guess you don't die. You become undead. And this clothing debate is a common thread of Jane and Catherine's interactions, which I thought was kind of curious. Catherine likes corsets and bustles. So in that way, she's more traditionally feminine, quote unquote, um, which is these corsets and bustles are typical women's fashion from the Victorian age. Um, and then Jane keeps arguing with Catherine about that her decision to wear that type of clothing. Um, Jane isn't exaggerating when she says corsets kill people. Corsets can displace ribs and make breathing really difficult and like puncture a lung, she says at one point. So she's like, Catherine, don't wear that shit. You will die because you won't be able to fight shamblers as effectively. Also, maybe just like wait to wear them until you're out of this like shambler apocalypse going on and then wear it. Right. Just like put put them in a closet for safekeeping and yeah. come back to it later. Also, your legs are always cold when you're wearing a dress. I hate wearing them. And they wear dresses with pants under them for modesty. Well, I guess it's like, like leggings. Like, fuck it. Just well, wear pants. Yeah. Yeah, at that point. Or like Catherine is like really put off by the idea that they're both going to have to wear pants. She's like, I'm not putting pants on. And I'm like, just put the fucking pants on. <laughs> like you're about to be running through the woods. Like check your priorities, woman. Yeah. So side tangent about corsets. Be careful of the internet. P- public service announcement. So when I was looking at the oppressive history of women's clothing and corsets specifically, I found out that there's a contemporary community of people who do this thing called waist training i can't believe you haven't heard of this no i've never heard of this before (laughs) is this like a thing i should have heard of yeah i think like a lot of there's like some very famous people who do it i won't name names i'll just let them you guys can look it up if you want to i just didn't know this was a thing and i guess people are i think people should exercise agency over their bodies and over their appearance absolutely but who and what decides if that's oppressive or liberatory and i mean that's very subjective and personal too like with makeup are you reinforcing patriarchal stereotypes of what women's beauty does to look like or are you doing it in a subversive way i guess like for femme identified people where it's really important to like high femme perform femininity or i don't or at what point are you just like fucking doing what you feel like because you feel like it or is there always this other undertone, political undertone? I would say yes, there's always, but like, 
who is that legible to? I guess it probably depends on the space you're in and who is, I guess, reading, quote unquote, the performance of your appearance in various ways. Hashtag it's complicated. It's so complicated. I mean, I can't imagine wearing a corset like all day long to try and make myself look a specific way, but it's hard because I'm like, it's your body. It's your choice. Do what you want. That's the thing. It's like, I'm absolutely for that. Yeah. Bodily autonomy. Absolutely. But I'm also like, why are you doing this? But why? Exactly. But then like, is it my place to really say why? I know. I don't know. All I can say is me personally would not do it. Nothing. I like to be able to breathe very easily. I basically wear stretchy clothes. (laughs) (laughs) I wear the opposite of corsets. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, give me the bras with no wires in them. I want no wires anywhere on my body. Like no pokiness, no poking, no conforming. No, uh, you know, I'll wear tight jeans. That's as far as it'll go. (laughs) That's from your early emo days. Yes, it will never die. I will be emo for life. Hashtag emo forever. <laughs> we'll also link to a really interesting article about the sexist history of pockets. Yes. And how oppressive that is for women. What the fuck? Why didn't they want us to have pockets? So oh. that you couldn't smuggle weapons. But like, so you'd have to reach into a purse and they could see you. Is that why our pockets are still so small? You should read this article. I will. I would. The problem is I don't think... I want bigger pockets because I think it'll look weird on my pants. (laughs) But why do you think that'll look weird? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, why do we, why is tight fitting clothing the norm? It's not everywhere in the world. Well, because I'm an emo kid at heart and we wear tight clothes. Boys, girls, non-gendered people, non-binary people, all of us, tight clothes. All the emo people wear clothes. Tight clothes. Tight pants. (laughs) Not tight clothes, just tight pants. pants. (laughs) Well, probably tight shirts too. What do you think about clothes and makeup? I have a very complicated relationship with clothes and makeup. I am from the South. Going outside without makeup on is not allowed. Like, as someone who identifies as a woman, like, you you just don't do that. It's just expected that you'll put on makeup when you leave the house. And I have internalized that Mm. a lot. And I wear makeup every day, unless I'm sick. And... It's a hard, it's a difficult thing for me because I'm like, my face looks weird without it, but that is just my face. (laughs) So like, I shouldn't be, I don't know. I'm like almost 30 and I still, I'm like, why do I wear makeup every day? Like, why do I have to do this? But I feel super self-conscious if I don't, and I don't like to feel that way. So I'm like, I guess I'll just wear it. Are you wearing makeup right now? Yeah. Well, I'm going to go out after we're done recording. That's true. So I wake up, I do my hair, I do my makeup. I put my clothes on. I will not leave my house in sweatpants or leggings. Huh. Yeah. It's so curious that also the kind of makeup that we wear is supposed to look natural, quote I know. unquote. Like you can't, you're damned if you do wear it and it looks too much like you're wearing makeup. Right. And it's like too much, quote unquote. You're damned if you don't because that's stigmatized too. Right. It has to be like this perfect medium, this perfect middle ground. Yeah. But when I was younger, like in high school, as an emo kid, it was like, Make your face as pale as possible. Dark eyeliner, dark eye makeup. Did you make your face as pale as possible? Yeah. Really? It was just the thing. But so you as, put on lighter foundation? Yeah. But as a as a person of color, I'm like, why would I do that? But it's it's a difficult line to balance, I think, as a as like a scene kid, because there are so few people of color in it that you're like, I just wanna fit in. Mm-hmm. Which is 
also terrible. And now I'm kind of like, whatever, I'm just going to wear what I want, like with my weird <laughs> grandma kids, <laughs> <laughs> but also my Doc Martin. So I'm just with clothes. I think I have become more like I'm just going to wear what I want and what makes me comfortable, which is why I hardly ever wear dresses. I don't really wear shorts because they're not comfortable to me because my legs get cold. I And I'm just like, yes, I will wear a cardigan with every T-shirt because I'm cold all the time, you know, like that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. with makeup, I'm also like, why do I feel the need to do this? I don't know. I don't know. What are your feelings about it? I also used to always wear makeup when I left the house. And I think honestly, just this past semester when I've been, you know, struggling with depression and anxiety more mm-hmm. so than ever in my life. I just kind of, I kind of, I started taking, I think, concealer, mascara, and like eyebrow pencil in a Ziploc bag with me in my backpack. I was like, I'll just, I don't feel like doing it now because I try to leave the house early. Right. I was like, I'll just do it in two minutes before I go to class or whatever. And I've consistently forgotten. Mm -hmm. And then I actually don't miss it. And so I've kind of gotten used to my face without makeup, which is not something I had ever done before. (laughs) Right. And it's, I mean, I guess a silver lining. Yeah. Hold on question mark yeah i've seen know. you without makeup a bunch of, you've never seen me without makeup on i'm not wait yeah i know i think you've seen me without makeup a lot of times but had you met me a year ago you would never have seen me without makeup on right yeah like i would even put on mascara to go to the gym what the fuck is that okay i do take my makeup off before going to the gym i'm not trying to break out <laughs> <laughs> i did stop wearing like concealer and like foundation when i don't know what all this stuff is called sometimes because it's like too many words. they're two different things but okay like whatever the powder is, there's finishing powder, okay. there's highlighter, there's foundation. I think there's... it was just foundation. I don't wear concealer unless I'm breaking out and I feel like better about that. But it took me like a year. I'm going to say part of it was the prednisone. It made me break out real bad. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that that's like complicated. I'm like an older person dealing with breakouts, yeah. which makes me very self-conscious as well. So I started doing recently like korean inspired skincare like Mm -hmm. a routine with like two cleansers and two serums and like lotions and all the and masking and all this stuff um and so that's actually been really fun my partner actually do it every night which is so great (laughs) it's so great he's wonderful um and so i guess that's just been a different relationship skincare was also like Talking about beauty products to me was always makeup. Right. Rather than skincare, which is something that's actually like nourishing to me and makes me feel good. Right. And sometimes makeup does that. Like if I, I like putting on makeup when I'm going out or something. Like right. That's fun to do. Right. It's complicated. It is complicated. Also, now I just wear what I want. Yeah. As you should. I don't care about that now. Yeah. Mm, I only care about it a little bit. But less than before. Well, I, I'm sure I probably cared about it, but. Are we going to go back to talking about books now? <laughs> yes. I feel like we just had like a mini makeup therapy session. We did. It was great. Um, there's a lot of misogyny going on in this story. And probably some of that is wrapped up in the time period, I think. Um, but there are things women aren't supposed to talk about. They aren't supposed to curse. They aren't supposed to be around men alone. I was just, I'm like... Which like how Jane's just very much like fuck all their societal conventions. I do what I want. Yeah, because at the same time, Jane is one of the most badass, smart characters we meet in this novel, and she's a biracial woman, which seriously kills the sheriff, literally and figuratively. Um, I loved her, and I was happy and excited to have a character that looks like me 
and representation matters so much. I have all the feelings about Jane being so kick-ass and awesome. Just all of them. I just love her. So great. Can I be her? Can I learn how to use those weapons? You are also kick-ass and awesome. Thank you. (laughs) But I don't know how to use those weapons, and I think that would be really cool. I should stop being so obsessed with sharp things. (laughs) The use of sickles. Yeah. I think is important. Okay. And Jane's preference for sickles because it's not like a long range weapon. Like we see a lot of female heroine characters being archers. Right. Which is specifically like a Mm non-combat or or a non-close combat, like non-physical contact sort of weapon. So like maybe safer from a distance. It's more delicate. It's more about aiming versus Jane is literally just like two rusty ass sickles, like hacking through some necks. Um, they're also the connection of sickles to harvesting, right? Right. And as like, and slavery as yep. an institution. And also sickles as a symbol for a lot of different communist regimes. Yeah. I mean, obviously that's not in this timeline. Right. Because it's an alternate history and it's also pre those sorts of like right. happening before that would have happened. Um, in the 20th century versus this is takes place in the mid 18th century no mid 19th century sorry 1800s mid 1800s yeah um so i don't know i just thought that the sickle in particular i thought that was a very specific choice on the author's part to choose that weapon i think so there's a scene in season one of the punisher which i love um where he talks about like like the the power of using a knife because it's like close combat and like you can feel someone die. It's very violent. If you don't like violent, bloody, gory stuff, I would not watch it. But I'm also like, hell yeah, Jane is using sickles. Like she's like, I'm going to kill this person or undead person, but Mm -hmm. I also want to realize when they're dead. Like I I need to know. And I think it, because it's so important. They need to cut their heads off. Like they need to know or else the shamblers are, don't die. Right. Um, but what I what I find really empowering about this choice of weapon for this protagonist is that Jane says time and time again that she likes those close range hand to hand combat weapons. And I think I, I love that it is just kind of celebrating the like black and biracial body as a powerful body that can kick ass that can. And it also puts the female this female character so up and close and personal with death and right. with the materiality and the violence of, you know, putting down these zombies and fighting for your life, like the materiality and like what's at stake in surviving. Right. Um, rather than giving her arrows right. to shoot from afar. Right. Those are two very, they have two very different, um, I guess, very different consequences. Yeah. And we know that she's used a gun at least twice, one to kill her dad. And I was like, Damn. Good, good, good. Like, I was one, I did not know that was her dad. So, when that came out, I was like, wait, what? Also, she was like six? Yeah. And I'm like, I, I just like loved her all the more for being like protective of her other, like of her mom, who I'm also not a fan of. But I appreciated that, that she's like, let me kill this guy. Gotta take him out. And then she kills the sheriff with a gun. I don't know. I just like love her being like, I'm gonna kill these people hashtag no regrets <laughs> i'm like yeah i'm here for it you know i love a character who's like let me kill some people i don't feel bad about it 
I just love it so much. That's one of a that's a main I guess ideological difference between Jane and Catherine and they mm-hmm. have this conversation at the end of the novel when Jane's talking about how she's going to take out the sheriff. Right. And Catherine says, "But if you turn him into a shambler, if you kill him, that makes you no better than him, the, meaning the sheriff." Right. Do you agree with that? No, because he's already a bad person. He's doing terrible things. Jane is trying to save people. I wrote down in my notes in the margins of the novel, Jay would not agree with Catherine. (laughs) Of course I don't. I'm like, kill them. Just kill them. Just kill them. That's always, I'm like, oh, I'm I'm sorry. I'd probably definitely be Cersei in Game of Thrones. Like, kill them all. (laughs) I don't care. Who cares? Or like, Old school Daenerys, who is like just Dracarys on everyone. Yes. Yes. Do you agree? I don't. Okay. I th- I'm i for the diver- of diversity of tactics. Right. I think that's important. Catherine is considered too pretty to be an attendant to a quote unquote proper lady. And there is some mention that this is because the women are worried about their husband husbands which really speaks to the lack of responsibility we place on white men as if they're not responsible for their actions which really influence and protects rape culture then and now we see this now when people try to ban leggings i'll link to an article about oh yeah this. was it was like an op-ed right that this this mom it, it, Notre I, Dame. yes yeah i i linked to an article like about the history of banning leggings because there was also a a young woman who was told she couldn't get on a flight. Oh yeah. I remember that. Yeah. But in this one case, a mother at Notre Dame asked young women to think of her sons. What you're actually saying is my son is not responsible for how your clothes make him act, which is bullshit. Especially when you think of the way black men are held to an extra high standard. Obviously they do not get a pass on their violence toward women, but the smallest things from a black man can be considered an act of violence when they wouldn't be from a white man. This was, like, so frustrating to me. Well, at the same time, there's, like, co-opted. Black men are co-opted as an right. object, like, as a, an, like, orientalized or exoticized object of white female sexual desire. Right. It was just, like, so frustrating to me. I'm like, what do you mean she's too pretty? What do you mean your husband is not responsible for how he acts? What do you mean your fucking son is not responsible for how he acts when a girl is wearing leggings? Like, that is just... What that says to me is that, like, you didn't do your work raising. How hard is it to say, men. Um, hey, child of mine, if you want to have sex with someone, get consent. Enthusiastic consent. Enthusiastic consent. Like, how fucking hard is that? It doesn't sound that difficult. Like, I don't know. It's infuriating when women. I guess it goes back to what you're saying about um, when black people hold up oppression. This is women holding up the oppression of themselves like it makes no sense at all oh it was like so frustrating to me this morning I just read um I've been reading Audre Lorde's collection of essays Sister Outsider for my class this coming Tuesday and um I there's an essay in this book in her book called Manchild Black Lesbian Feminists Response or something like that and it talks about um, Audre Lorde it's just like a masterful essay about how about raising men and the importance of that and how there's just as much hope in her male child as there is in her female child um, 
hope for the future, right? right. So separatist, like lesbian separatist sort of like disavowing that, which mm-hmm. was very big in the 70s and 80s when she's writing these essays. But highly recommend that essay. It's very pertinent to this whole conversation. Raise your kids better, people. Take responsibility. Yeah. They're responsible for their actions. Shishi Rose also on Instagram talks a lot about this for like white parents raising trying to do more anti-racism in their raising of their white children oh yeah i think mm, lila lila sod yeah she just had uh, she's doing a workshop coming up i think on raising children to oh be yeah anti-racist aaron signed up for that oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> your future kids will not be racist <laughs> if i have them <laughs> if you have them that's your choice they probably will be racist they grew up in a racist society well, yeah. but we'll try to do more anti-racism Finally, it's time for Shipwrecked, a segment about asexuality, actually this time, (laughs) sexuality, sex, romance, and relationships. And sometimes we take liberties and do some shipping of our own. Catherine is ace. We get a suggestion that she's ace, don't we? Yes. I actually saw this book. Uh, There are a couple of book bloggers doing um, asexual books for April. And this book was on a list. And I was like... And this episode comes out in April. That's so great. It's perfect. I was like, wow, this was, this was great. And what I loved is that when Catherine talks about it, which it takes a long time, she doesn't reveal this until the very end of the book. Um, so it takes a long time to build the confidence in Jane in order to share this. But um, when Catherine does, she's like, I just don't feel those feelings for anyone. Right. I see the way you look at all the dudes and even the women. And some women, and I don't feel that way. And what I loved is that Jane doesn't try to gaslight Catherine right. or try any other invalidating bullshit. I did feel a little bad for Catherine, though, because there were a couple times where she's obviously having to pretend to have these feelings for people. Um, I, you see it a little bit with, obviously, Jane thinks that Catherine has feelings for Gideon and Jackson and she's like pretending to have feelings for the sheriff. And I don't know if this is Jane putting her, um, her own like idea of what it looks like to be attracted to someone onto Catherine. But I also feel bad that Catherine has to pretend to have these feelings for people. You know, what's messed up is that I didn't even think about how awful that would be as an ace person to have to perform allosexuality. There was a really good article I just read, and it was anonymous um, from a person who like just realized that they were asexual, like more recently, and it was like kind of sad to think about like having to pretend to have crushes as a kid and like, yeah, you know, like all those things. That... Allosexuality is like it's yeah. so ingrained, yeah, which is unfortunate. So I really appreciated this, but also felt like bad for Catherine for you know, she's white passing. But she's got some other issues. And she's super pretty. Yeah. Which then is supposedly, for a woman in that time, and even now, is supposed to be like, having men find you attractive or just people find you sexually attractive is supposed to be how we get some of our value for ourselves as human beings. Yeah. And that it just doesn't does not compute does yeah. not not relevant for like, asexual people like this for anyone honestly yeah but like for sure. especially more it's a way more complicated i would say yeah like the scene from the spider-man trailer far from home where she's like he's like you look pretty today and she's like and that means i have value yeah and i'm like yeah yeah no it doesn't it doesn't mean anything mm-hmm. it's just how you look i do th- i think that your point about jane interpreting 
Catherine's interest and then feeling jealousy just shows how allosexuality is jealousy is very ingrained in allosexuality this idea of this scarcity mindset of this ownership mindset it's which is like a you know this western on like colonialized mindset of what relationship sexual relationship has to be like um is just very prevalent in allosexuality in general yeah i can you define allosexuality i had to look it up when we did this yeah so some people might not so know. allosexuality is the is people who feel sexual attraction and so there's obviously a spectrum right people have different preferences but allosexuality would be the umbrella for any sort of sexual desire whether that's kink um or you know heterosexuality and all this other stuff like allosexuality i guess would be the opposite i don't know if that's a good term to use of asexuality yeah it's hard because ace is a spectrum (laughs) right exactly but what i think what what the term allosexuality does is it it doesn't make asexuality isn't the only thing that has a qualifier right right it gives it's not just like oh branching off from sexuality is normal right it's giving it that prefix i think is important because it it means that oh asexuality isn't just like weird pathologized different allosexuality is also it's just a different you know experience and choice yeah and or maybe not choice some there's also debate about whether it's choice or not thank you welcome jane's fluid yeah allosexuality and also like she just like tells us and it's like yeah i had feelings for this other girl and she was a good kisser and like i'm like okay cool she looked good she yeah. looked like hot <laughs> wielding those weapons and like, Catherine also notices because she's like i see the way you look at mary whatever <laughs> or something mary i don't remember yeah it was a uh, another girl at miss right. preston's yeah i was like cool that's awesome we're getting a lot of and then Catherine spectrum. didn't make yeah and then Catherine didn't make that a thing right just like okay great you do or don't desire different human beings awesome it was much appreciated and i unexpected i was very pleasantly surprised by that yeah which also made me think and i knew you were going to bring up the idea of a thruple because we had different ideas for (laughs) jackson (laughs) i was like if someone was going to make them like a thruple at this point because of all the things justina ireland has put into this novel i'm like she would do that Mm mm-hmm I think I recommend the episode of the all my relations podcast, which is by two in indigenous academic women. Um, the episode decolonizing sex where they talk about their guest talks about um, how monogamy is very much t- tied up with Western settler colonialist patriarchy, capitalism, that sort of thing. Notions of ownership, notions of scarcity. Friendships. Frenemies to besties. What'd you think about that? You know, for someone who loves enemies to lovers so much, I don't really care for friends, enemies to friends as much. I didn't dislike it, but I have like no strong feelings either way. I appreciated the friendship between Jane and Catherine and I like how it like came about and they still kind of sometimes like kind of shitty to each other, Um, (laughs) which is like kind of also friends can be that way too. Yeah. And they're young. I don't want to discount the fact that they're like young people and sometimes. And also they're in the middle of the apocalypse. Also, they have to live on the prairie, which sounds terrible. 
to me <laughs> tornadoes i have a huge fear of tornadoes and i feel like they're probably near where tornadoes happen there would be like shamblers all up in those tornadoes oh my god i don't even want to think about shambler tornadoes it'd that be like awful. sharknado but with i know <laughs> that sounds awful um what are your thoughts i didn't mind this i i wasn't surprised I was glad that they both came to a greater understanding of one another. And it shows that their enemy status was mainly miscommunication. And some competition, I think, as well. Yeah. So when you're competing for authority, the like, um, I don't know. What's the word? When you're competing for recognition, I guess. Yeah. In the eyes of authority figures. Right. Um. Like those sorts of systems thrive on putting other people, and in this case, women, right down. Um, and I women of color, women of color, yeah, exactly. Um, instead of building solidarity, I mean that's obviously not what we want to be doing. <laughs> but um, <laughs> and I like how when they left the leaving that, and leaving Miss Preston's, leaving those circumstances, meant that they actually got to know each other and they actually got to you know struggle together and saw that they're actually in it together it's a larger there are bigger problems out there than who miss anderson likes better or who gets the better grades or who is first in your class how you can follow the rules best yes that's one thing where i definitely identified with Catherine. So oh, like I... she was such a rule follower <laughs> i knew you would i was and like then she was such a Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> but then she like gets unleashed when she's like oh fuck it all what do we need to do to unleash you? I don't I think the world. <laughs> I think it's already happening. Okay, good. Good, good. Sexy times. None to speak of. But no. this didn't bother me in this book at all. Sometimes when we read books and all hell is breaking loose, I'm like, when are you having time to have sex in these relationships and these makeouts or whatever? I'm like, who has time for that when the world is ending? So I was like, cool, we don't need that. <laughs> nope. I was okay with it. Definitely. I feel like we might get more in future books because of this. I don't think Gideon's dead. I don't know what's going to happen with him, but I think he'll be, he'll come back with all his nerdiness. <laughs> and she left with Jackson. They left with Jackson. So we'll see. We'll see. Now we're going to talk about writing style, narration, characterization, plot structure, and basically whatever else comes to mind in Kill Your Darlings. I enjoyed the paratextual additions to the hardcover edition. There's the tattered pages on the outside. It's got this old-timey font in the chapter titles. And the first page of a chapter is made to look like splotchy and grimy and old. I thought those were cute little details. I like that, too. Added a je ne sais quoi. Yeah. <laughs> the fight scenes were really good, too. Yeah, they were. I really liked them. I loved how gory they were. I don't enjoy horror, but I do enjoy kind of violent movies. I don't know what that says about me, and I'm not really don't want to investigate that right now. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I guess I don't have to start investigating it then. If you no, don't go want ahead. To no, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> about the so like is the vi the violence itself isn't the scary part necessarily. Right. It's the creating the suspense and the scariness of the horror genre. Right. Violence within that affective context is what you don't like. Well, it's actually, I don't really like thrillers as much, mm. like psychological thrillers, because I'm like, this could happen to me. Mm. But when it's like monsters, I don't get as scared. Or superhero movies. 
Oh yeah, I love superhero right. movies. But there's there's a lot of violence in those too. Yeah, or The Punisher, very violent, very gory. Fight Club, love Fight Club. <laughs> oh god. I know no. you don't like it, but I love Fight Club. <laughs> it's not going to yuck your yum. Both book and movie, they're very similar. Um yeah, I don't know why. I just like violent stuff. I'm not a very violent person, obviously. I'm not violent towards people. But only people. but violence associated with or the presence or more accurately the lack of certain emotions yeah like you don't want to be scared no you don't want to feel like it could happen to vulnerable like it could right. happen to you it's more like an escapist fantasy sort of thing yeah probably because i'm like let me be in the mindset of this person who could like take down all these people and kill them without feeling any remorse for them i can't i don't feel that thing i want to be like i don't want to be able to kill people right <laughs> i mean unless i needed to for some reason um like they hurt my cat i would definitely do that but I don't know. Yeah. Jesse would be John Wick, basically. Oh, my God. In you also second, love John Wick. I love John Wick. Love it. I can't wait for the third one to come out. And I'm really sad the Punisher is canceled. Like, one of my favorite MCU superheroes. He doesn't really have superpowers. I think it's part of the reason I like it so much. He's just an ordinary person who lost his family because of some awful friend. Sorry, spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so this book took me some time to get into mostly because Jane is a narrator and she has a Southern accent and the exposition has that Southern accent. This is obviously a personal preference, um, but it always throws me off for about 50 pages when an author decides to make this choice. I think it might be a little bit because I'm from the South. And so I'm like, can you just tell me they're Southern? And then I can hear that voice throughout for the rest of the time. Hmm. But I understand people who aren't from there that might be more difficult because we don't get in media we don't get that many depictions of people from the south who aren't also lower class uneducated people isn't exploiting those sorts of identities like stereotypes yeah exactly Mm -hmm. um so that was like kind of like weird for me that also took me a while to get used to and one of the things i don't i don't know if like just a southern accent i don't think that i think that's part of it but i think the bigger aspect for me was the um chronological part of it right these certain dialectical things that were from a specific time period Mm -hmm. that were just so unfamiliar that it it was also it almost like took me out of the reading experience rather than pushing me further into it sometimes yeah but then after a while I got used to it yeah it was fine I did too it it was funny though my partner did remark that I had said some extra southern things while reading this book (laughs) and like he didn't realize that I was reading a book that was from like antebellum south what'd you <laughs> like, say do you remember i don't know i uh, <laughs> who knows but it's just funny because i'm like oh i don't think i have a southern accent until i like listen to something i said and i'm like oh my god i have a southern accent <laughs> which is fine i love them it comes out it's great it's fine i don't care the phrase by any means necessary was used many times throughout this novel which was obviously a nod to malcolm x and i loved it and agree I did not pick up on this at all. I saw it so many times. I was like, oh my God, they're like making this parallel. Like use whatever tactics you need to gain your freedom. I'm so glad that you brought this up. That's so, this adds a whole nother layer of the novel for me. Yeah. It was also really interesting to have looked up the phrase by any means necessary. Cause I just wanted to make sure like attribute it to the right person, but I didn't know it was also something said by John Paul Sartre. So hmm. I don't remember in what context in some play. Recommend if you like 
zombie stories, TV series, or movies. Like so. The Walking Dead. Yep. This this definitely had Walking Dead sort of vibes for me. That overt violence, the um, like the stakes running away, those sorts of like needing to band together with people that you don't normally have things in common with. Um, for sure. I've only seen two episodes, so I can't say. My partner did love the show for a while. Another, also recommend if you like fiction that explicitly addresses our current historical moment, like the MAGA garbage that exists, unfortunately. Um, this Dread Nation is in direct dialogue with that, and that's why, one of, the, one of the many reasons why I think it's such an important novel that people should be reading. And another, recommend if you like alternate histories, like PKD, Philip K. Dick's um, Man in the High Castle, for example. Or like Inglorious Bastards. <laughs> sure, that's another <laughs> that's another example, sure. I love that movie. Very violent. <laughs> Have you seen that movie? Mm-hmm. Okay. Also, like, diverse books with biracial people. Real happy to see that. Oh, so, yeah. I don't think we've read a book with a biracial person, with Percy. Percy and, from Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue by Mackenzie Lee. Yeah, and Ship It. But not that's with right. a biracial main character, so... I don't think Shippet was biracial. I don't think Tess I keep was biracial. saying that. It's great if you identify. That's cool. <laughs> I keep saying she's biracial. I should stop correcting you then. <laughs> no, it's okay. I don't know why I assume that. Probably because you identify with it because she was, you know... <laughs> I know. Such a huge nerd. Yeah, that's true. Um, also, currently reading Black Enough, which is an anthology series, and there's a really good um, segment on black nerds and... Um, the phrase Oreo. And I'm going to put that in the show notes because I think it could be a good read for people who want to read about the diversity of Black experiences. I'm definitely going to read it. Before we end, it's time for Real Talk. Did reading this book make your perspective change in any way or did it make you interrogate a concept, system, or trend you hadn't before? I can't believe that I haven't. we haven't brought up walls until this point in the... <laughs> At the end of the episode. I saw it here, so I was like, I won't bring it up for now. <laughs> so let's just uh, cut to the chase and say walls don't work. No. No, thank you. They're a terrible symbol. They are, they keep bad things, like they keep bad things in and yeah, are just, you know, not effective. Also, isolationism doesn't work. No. It's just fear mongering again. Yeah. It's terrible. You need to, to be able to embrace difference, talk across difference, see it as um, generative rather than threatening. It requires a lot of inner work and like journaling and therapy, but do that and it is going to be better for everyone in the end. Also a waste of money. Like put that money into our education system. That's mm-hmm. what we need. Not a fucking wall. Another thing that I wanted to bring into Real Talk is the presence of both hope and rage in the novel, which I loved. Uh, Like Jane, I stand these two emotions forever. Side by side. I can do both at the same time. Also, we didn't get a depiction or the feeling that Jane was categorized as an angry black woman, which I really appreciated, even though she was obviously full of rage for most of the book and killing people, doing whatever she needed by any means necessary exactly (laughs) thanks for listening to jk it's magic we'll be back in two weeks for a discussion of a court of mist and fury by sarah j mass aka math and watch out for the occasional minisode about a range of fantasy adjacent topics
You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at JKMagicPod. Post or tweet about the show using the hashtag CriticallyReading. If you have an idea for a book that we should add to our TBR, email us at JKMagicPod at gmail.com. We would love to hear your suggestions. Know a friend who would enjoy the podcast? Please spread the word. You can subscribe to JK's Magic on the podcast app of your choice. And if you're feeling really nice, we'd appreciate it if you would rate and review the show. JK's Magic is recorded on land traditionally belonging to Cheyenne, Ute, and Arapaho Native people. Until next time, stay magical. segue from white supremacy to <laughs> you're laughing at me i'm not laughing at you i'm laughing it's like kelly has a lot of notes under race this time. i do i do so no many... go for it go for it it's just so funny. many notes <laughs>